Today I am continuing a series talking about how to harness your emotions. I was basically saying that God holds us responsible for our emotions, which is a totally new concept to most people. Most people desire to have positive emotions, but they feel no accountability, no control, no responsibility for how they feel. They think that feelings are just a product of environment and what happens to you. And if bad things happen, you can't help but feel a certain way. And I used all last week using many, many scriptures to disprove that. You know, let me just mention that we have this teaching here on harnessing your emotions. I have it in CD format, DVD format. I have a book on harnessing your emotions. And then we've put together a package that includes this teaching on self-centeredness, the source of all grief, which is in my estimation, one of the most important things that I teach. I also have a teaching here on how to be happy. Paul, writing from prison, the book of Philippians, and yet he mentioned rejoice, rejoicing, uh, more than any other writing he ever did from prison, completely contrary to normal. And then I've got a teaching on anger management, which is also really important. And we've put all of this into a package, and one of my employees uh, you know, suggested we call it Get a Grip. And so my son, he has a business, the one who is raised from the dead, he has a business where he takes mugs and, and he engraves on mugs and glass and stuff. So he made a little cup that they're adding to this package entitled Get a Grip. It's got a tire track on it and then the AWM uh, website. So anyway, there is an entire package offered and I would really encourage you to get the entire package because this is a huge subject and I'm devoting just a few weeks to talking about your emotions, but this is a huge subject that just touches so many different areas. And a lot of what I share ha uh, is applicable to uh, talking about your emotions. So let me just uh, today, I wanna start talking about psychology versus Christianity. And now that is a major topic right here. And let me just introduce this by saying that I don't really uh, get any pleasure out of this because uh, psychology has become so ingrained into our society that uh, even Christians have accepted a lot of psychological values and things that I'm going to be countering. And I know that this is going to upset people and they're going to sit there and feel like I'm criticizing them. Well, I admit that psychology has helped people compared to nothing. People that don't have the Word of God and that don't have the instruction and in all of the truths that I'm sharing about how to harness your emotions, psychology may be a help to you because it's better than nothing in some respects. But if you put it up against Christianity, there are major differences between psychology and what the Bible teaches. But did you know as I've grown in the ministry, I've realized that just like Jesus said, Matthew or excuse me, it was Mark 7, 13, that the traditions and the doctrines of men make the Word of God of none effect. And I've learned that before you can build and plant, you have to go through and root out and take out the rocks and all of the stuff that keeps the seed from producing. And so I've just learned that when I'm teaching on something like emotions, and so here's what the Bible says, and I'm going along this track. Well, here comes psychology that is, you know, opposed to it. It's gonna, we're going to intersect. And I've realized that for me to teach on this and to have the seed of God's Word that I'm sowing into people's lives really produce, I'm going to have to counter 
to root out, to pull down, to tear down, to destroy contrary thinking. And again, I say that psychology has become entrenched in our society, not only in our secular society, but even Christians have embraced a lot of psychological attitudes. And unless you change the way you think on certain issues uh, that we have gained because of the influence of psychology, then it will undo and uproot the Word of God that I'm teaching. Again, I say all of this to say that I'm not against any individual. There are Christian psychiatrists that are, you know, whatever their reasons are, they feel that God has led them to do that. But there are major differences between biblical Christianity and psychology. And I need to point these out in order for uh, the things that I'm teaching on this to be able to take traction and work in your life. So let me just first of all use this scripture in Matthew chapter 7. And in verse 17, here's what Jesus said. He said, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, and a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth evil fruit. Somebody might say, well, why are you reading that verse? Because I believe if you go back and study psychology and the origin of it, it's got a bad root and a bad tree is not going to produce good fruit. You know, if you go back, and I'm not going to spend the whole time, it's, I'm not a psychiatrist, uh, I don't have a degree in this, it's not, my, I, it's not my intention to do a total expose on this, but just a real quick examination of this. You could go back to uh, Plato, Socrates, the philosophers, and in a sense, they were promoting these ideas and they were dealing with emotions. A lot of philosophy and psychology revolves around how you deal with emotions. And these things, a lot of these philosophies and stuff are contrary to what God's Word teaches. Uh, in modern psychology, I read on the internet that there was a statement that Sigmund Freud had probably done more to um, you know, promote and, and uh, lay the foundation for modern psychology than any other man alive. The reason I bring this up, I'm not out to trash this guy, but if you look at his life, he was a messed up person. I mean, he was a sexual mess. He believed that any problem you had went back to the sex drive. This man was obsessed with sex. And modern day psychology has tried to, you know, divorce themselves, move away from him because... Uh, it's this same point that I'm making. If the root is bad, is what Jesus said, then you can't have good fruit come out of it. The foundation of modern psychology is basically ancient philosophy and the modern part of it was started by Sigmund Freud and he was a messed up person. And again, I just say that if the root is bad, then the fruit is going to be bad. If people went back and examined the foundation of where this came from, I don't believe they would be as quick and as prone to embrace a lot of the doctrines that they're putting forth. The word psychology, here's another way of looking at it. The root, where did it come from? The word psychology comes from the Greek word or the Latin word suke, and it was translated soul or souls 55 times in the New Testament. It literally is talking about the soulish, mental, and emotional part of you. So here again is another reason to be dubious about psychology because it by definition is only dealing with things from the mental, emotional, the soulish part of you. 
And yet one of the things that just literally transformed my life was when I understood the difference between spirit, soul, and body. When I realized that there was more to me than just this physical person and a mental, emotional part, but there was a spiritual part of me. God created Adam and Eve and they were a physical body and they had the brain and they had all of the capabilities of a normal human being, but there was no life in them until God breathed into them the breath of life. That exact word that's used is the same word that was used in the Old Testament for spirit. He breathed, He blew a spirit into them and the spirit became the life-giving part of a person. And this is the reason that James 2.26 says, as the body without the spirit is dead. When the spirit leaves, Life leaves. Your spirit is the life-giving part. And psychology doesn't even acknowledge that there is a spirit realm. It's dealing with everything from a totally humanistic standpoint. Now those are some strong statements that I've made, but all I'm doing is just showing you that the foundation of psychology and Christianity are different. The root in Christianity in the Bible is good. The root of psychology is anti-God at worst, and at the very best, you could say it's humanistic. It just doesn't even take God into account. It's dealing with everything from a totally humanistic, I am all that there is, I just have to deal with things in my own ability uh, standpoint, and that is not healthy. So here is the definition of psychology. I wrote this down. It says, psychology is the science of mental processes and behavior. Uh, and I do agree that our behavior it comes from the way we think. I believe that that squares 100% with Scripture. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. And the context of that is it's talking about when you go into a rich man's house, don't be deceived by his dainties. Don't be fooled by all of his trappings. It's not these external things. It's as he thinks in his heart. That's the way that he is. You can take a pig and clean it up and put perfume on it, put a bow in its hair and paint its toenails, but it's still a pig. And I guarantee you, if you let that thing go, it'll go straight to the slop and wallow in the mire because that's its nature. You can take a person and you can put them in a palace and you can dress them in fancy clothes and do everything, but it's as they think in their heart. That's the way that they are. And I, be I believe that uh, that is 100% true. And psychology is the process of mental, the mental process and how it influences behavior. I agree with that, that our actions are controlled by our thoughts. Sometimes fears, irrational fears and stuff. And if you can go show a person that their fears are in, irrational and deal with it, well, then you can help them to change their behavior. I agree with those kind of things. That is not a problem. There are similarities there. But here are some of the major things that I disagree with psychology. And I'm going to just point out four different areas. I'm sure that it could be probably... Uh, this isn't necessarily a certain order that I'm putting them in. There could probably be more differences, but I'm just going to point out four different things. The first one is that psychology believes that your emotions are a byproduct of your environment or circumstances. In other words, they see the 
emotions, and this is, there's a lot of things we could deal with here, but I'm teaching on how to harness your emotions, so I'm going to try and limit these comments to how it affects our emotions. But psychology basically teaches that emotions are just like a reaction, a byproduct, nearly a chemical reaction to your environment and circumstances. They do believe that your thoughts control actions, but they believe that your thoughts are just totally dominated by what happens to you. And hence, this is the reason that psychology comes up with and they go back and tell you that when you were a child, you were abused and that this fear and this phobia and this shame and this condemnation is what drives all of these things. And I don't disagree that your environment and your circumstances have an influence on you. But here's one of the major differences that I disagree with psychology. They teach that basically you do not have the ability to think and act differently than what your circumstances are dictating to you. Now, they do preach behavior modification, that you can modify this a little bit. You might be able to change to a degree, but you can't just totally act as if nothing had ever happened to you. Psychology teaches that your environment or circumstances is the driving force, that you are a product of your environment. You are made. And again, what this is doing, it's denying the spiritual realm. It's denying the fact that you can be born again, that God can give you a brand new heart, that you can be completely changed. Uh, for instance, here's an example, and please don't write me about this. Every time I mention this, I have people write me and they will criticize me. I'm not going to read your letter. You are wasting your time. I have heard it before. But I, here is an example of what I'm talking about. For instance, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, they do believe in a higher power. That's the 12th step of their program. And so they believe in a higher power, but they basically believe that once an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. They will say things like when they stand up, and I've been to alcoholic meetings with people that I was ministering to to see how uh, they are going. And they will stand up and say, hello, my name is so-and-so. I've been an alcoholic for 30 years. I've been sober for two years but they confess that that is their nature. That's who they are. Their circumstances, their environment has made them this. And they might be able to modify their behavior. They may be able to get off of uh, alcohol and they may be sober, but their heart is still an alcoholic. They still have an alcoholic mentality. They still see themselves as just one drink away from being right back off the wagon and back into this. Now, see, this is completely, completely contrary to true Christianity where 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Christianity doesn't teach that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, that you can be born again and you can be so delivered and so set free that it's hard for you or anybody else to even believe that you ever had, had that problem. I've literally known people, I've had people that work for me, people that were good friends that when they got to telling me their history and where they came from, it is so hard to believe because they aren't that way anymore. It's not like they just modified their behavior a little bit. They are transformed people. But again, see, psychology teaches that your environment 
your circumstances dictate how you are going to be. And that leads to a lot of wrong conclusions. But the second uh, problem or the second difference that I differ with uh, psychology is that if your environment is the controlling, dictating thing and you're just like an animal and you can't choose and become better instead of bitter, well, then that leads to placing the blame for your actions and for your problems on everybody else. And psychology is a master at doing this. And again, this goes completely contrary to the Word of God because one of the principles in the Word of God is you can choose how you want to live. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, the Lord said through Moses, He says, Behold, I call heaven and earth to record against you this day that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your seed may live. God says you choose. It's your choice. You are not forced into being a certain type of person. And boy, this is one of the things that really grates on me. And this is one of the reasons I've got to come out and challenge this because the psychological point of view that has permeated our society, even Christian culture, says you can't help it. You aren't responsible. You were made to be this way. Nobody made you anything. You have a choice. That's what the Bible teaches. And some people say, but that condemns me. You're saying it's my fault. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that you may have had influences. You may have been raised in a home that didn't teach you godly principles. You might have been sexually abused, verbally abused. You may have had bad things happen that are all temptations and pressures that come against you, but they don't dictate. They don't demand that you have to have a negative response because the Lord says you can choose. You aren't just an animal. It isn't just physical, mental processes that control you. There is a spirit on the inside of you, and this is one of the things that I disagree with psychology on 100,000%, and that is that you can choose. You have been made a new person. If you've made Jesus your Lord, there is a person on the inside of you that is full of love, joy, peace, all of these things. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I'll teach on that more as we go through this series. But you have a new you. You can choose. You can, be, you can choose to be a totally, totally, totally brand new person. You do not have to let your past dominate and control your present or your future. And again, at the very best, psychology teaches that you can, you can modify your behavior. You can limp through life. You might be able to overcome to a degree where you become functional, but you'll never be free. You're going to be bound the rest of your life by your past. That is completely contrary to Scripture. Man, the Scripture you know, talks about, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times, not just when everything is right. See, if you embrace these attitudes of psychology, it leads you to praying and saying, Oh God, get rid of everybody in my path today who's going to rub me the wrong way. And yet, man, there are thousands of examples of people in Scripture who were under terrible situations, terrible oppression, and yet they just chose to believe God. You know, one that pops to my mind is in 1 Samuel chapter 30 in David after 13 years of running from his father-in-law and his father-in-law trying to kill him and he had to act like he was crazy one time. He'd been through these terrible things for 13 years 
And finally, as he was out with his men one day, he came back and the Amalekites had destroyed his city, had burned all of his goods, had taken everything spoiled, including the women and children. And now his own men were ready to kill him. It says, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. I think that's 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 5. And he had a choice and he chose to encourage himself. When there was a situation that there was nothing encouraging, Psychology would say, you're in denial. You just need to vent. You need to let it out. Now in that very passage of Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 30, it talks about he cried until he had no more power to weep, but then he got up and broke it. Many people, see, will just let their emotions absolutely dominate them and they don't realize that they can control their emotions. You can choose how you want to feel. I know many of you don't believe that and that's the reason that your emotions are out of control. I made reference to this briefly, but if you are depressed, you chose to be depressed. And some of you might say, oh, I did not. I don't want this. I don't like it. But you chose to allow your thoughts to be dominated and controlled by your negative circumstances. And some of you think, but I can't help it. Well, see, again, you are showing the inroad and the impact of psychology on your life. You think that it's just environment that controls your thoughts. I've spent, I've already used probably three or four dozen scriptures showing you where you were commanded to rejoice at all times, even in tribulations. Bless the Lord at all times. His praise continually be in your mouth. On and on. God would be totally unjust to say, let not your heart be troubled if you couldn't do it. You can do it. See, you have believed a lie and whether you know it, you... When I say that you've chosen to be depressed, it may not that you, be that you just said, all right, I want to be depressed, but you chose to believe that you can't control your thoughts. You chose to believe that you're in denial if you don't just fall apart like a $2 suitcase when something bad happens to you. You're the one that chose to believe that. And I'm telling you that your emotions will follow your thoughts 100%. If you think on the things that are depressing you, you will be depressed. If you think on the promises of God and if you see your future, you couldn't help but be re rejoicing. And somebody says, but the doctor says I'm dying. I don't have a future. Well, you're too short-sighted. If, if you die, the worst thing that would happen, if you know Jesus, you go to be with the Lord. You live forever in heaven. You have a mansion. You live on streets paved with gold. There'll never be any adversity. There'll never be anything. All of the former hurts and pains will be totally passed away. Your future is so bright, you got to squint to look at it. If you looked at things that way instead of just saying, oh, I'm going to die, that's the end. No, it's just the beginning. And even beyond that, you could go to the Word of God and take promises about how God can heal your body. You can be healed. I've seen my son raised from the dead. I've seen blind eyes open, deaf ears open, people come out of wheelchair, people healed of cancer. I've seen every kind of miracle that you can imagine. God still does those things today. You could choose to think on that. And if you thought on that, your emotions will follow your thoughts. If you think about the goodness of God, even if worst case scenario, you die and go to be with the Lord, think about heaven and what a blast it's going to be. It would take away your depression and discouragement. I've actually been with people who died and they went out with a shout because, man, they knew that this was just the beginning. It wasn't the end. Death isn't even a reason to gripe and complain and to be fearful for the Christian. Man, our, you know, it says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 around verse 55, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? 
It's been taken away through Christ. If worst case scenario happens and I die, I'm going to go spend eternity with the Lord and that's pretty awesome. Amen. And I could rejoice on my deathbed. And if I can choose to believe, I could even get healed and prolong my life here so that I finish my course and do what God told me to do. If you're depressed, you chose to think on the negative things in your life instead of think on the positive. Man, that's awesome. You know, I get a lot of criticism. I've got thousands of blogs written about me on the internet and criticizing me over things. And, you know, God made us for a relationship with Him. There is something inside of every person that wants to be loved and accepted. And it doesn't thrill me when people hate me and lie about me and say things about me. It doesn't bless me. But instead of taking the psychology's approach and hardening myself and blaming them and how dare you do this and, and you know, responding through bitterness and hurt and pushing back when I'm pushed. The scripture says that when they smite you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. I don't spend any of my time trying to defend myself, trying to go back and right these situations. I don't speak against these people. You know what I've done? I've just humbled myself and I've let God love me. And God's love and acceptance for me is so great that thousands of people's hatred and rejection against me is nothing in comparison. And that's the way that I cope. And that's the way that I keep my emotions steady is I focus on God who loves me, on friends and people who love me instead of the people that hate me. Man, that is so simple. You know, I was just uh, talking to Debbie Moore. Some of you remember the little video of Alan and Debbie Moore and Alan had a massive... Uh, stroke and literally killed one-third of his brain. According to the doctors, he wasn't supposed to be alive. And his brain still showed on MRI that his uh, brain was still dead, and yet he was functioning. And he, uh, his wife stood for him and believed for him, and he was miraculously raised up. And we have that on a DVD. We put out their testimony, and that happened... You know, I'm guessing here. I, I may be missing it, but I think it happened four or five years ago that he had this massive stroke and they moved here and um, went to school and then they also worked in our phone center and Alan and Debbie answered our phones and made outbound calls. But then in, I think it was uh, the first of April, somewhere in the first week of April, uh, they had a car wreck where a woman T-boned them at 55 miles an hour and hit Alan on the driver's side. And uh, anyway, he had a lot of problems from this. Debbie also did uh, broken pelvis and a number of different things wrong. And anyway, they were believing for healing, but Alan died. I, I'm not, that's not my point in talking about this, but let me just say, because some people see a contradiction. How come he was healed the first time when he had the massive stroke and when he had uh, this car wreck that he died? And they see some kind of a contradiction. You know, I don't see that at all, but I've had so many people voice it. Let me just tell you what Debbie told me that uh, you know, when Alan died, she called him back, but the Lord spoke to her and says he, he wanted to go. Matter of fact, she was even telling me today that uh, he asked her, or no, she left, I think, to go take a shower because they'd been in the hospital for a number of days. And while she was gone, he just said he was not going to be uh, staying in the hospital. He was getting out that day and he wasn't going to have any physical training to go with it, that he was out and it was over. And then she left and it was while she was gone that he left. And when she tried to call him back, she, she just knew that he didn't want to come back. He was ready to go. 
So anyway, that's a separate story. But the reason I bring all of this up is that this is the second husband that Debbie has lost. The first one was to cancer. And um, then Alan died just back in April of 2015. And some people think that she should be grieving. Matter of fact, we've even had people here in my ministry say something about that she's not letting the grieving process go and that she should, you know, it take two or three years of her just being really suffering and depressed. And I tell you, Debbie is so excited. She's so happy. She's ministering to people. She's a blessing. And this fits perfectly with what I've been talking about, that see, psychology says, no, you are just a product of your environment. And if this negative thing happens, then you are just, they don't rule the spirit man into it. They don't recognize that we're created in the image of God. Psychology at its root is just humanistic. And it's dealing with things from a totally humanistic, natural standpoint. They don't believe that you can be energized and empowered by God. And so from psychology standpoint, which even some people here in this ministry have said that she's not allowing the grieving process and she's in denial. And I'm saying just the opposite. We aren't condemning anyone who does grieve over the loss of a loved one. It's understandable. That is the natural, normal way. But I'm saying that we aren't only normal. We aren't only natural. We are supernatural beings. Matter of fact, I often say that if your life isn't supernatural, it's superficial. And sad to say, most Christians, it's superficial. Most Christians are getting the exact same results as people that don't know the Lord. And I'm telling you, that is not right. Let me use this passage of Scripture out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it says in verse... 13, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it says, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others that have no hope. Boy, this is an amazing statement. Did you know Jesus bore our sorrows and carried our griefs? Isaiah chapter 53, I believe it's verses 3 and 4 right there. He bore our sorrows and carried our grief. Now, we aren't saying that if somebody dies that it's wrong for you to miss them. Matter of fact, something would be wrong with you if you didn't miss them. If you listen to Debbie, she says that there's times that she cries, but she just doesn't let that dominate her. <clears throat> and some of you are going to take offense at this. It's no offense intended. But I'm telling you, when you grieve over a person that's died because they aren't with you anymore, and I'm saying this in love. I pray that you will receive this in the way that I mean it, not necessarily the way you're going to interpret it. But when you grieve over a person who knew the Lord and is now in the presence of the Lord and is living forever in heaven, looking at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and if you are grieving, your grief is really because of what you are missing, not because of what they're missing. You aren't grieving for them. You're grieving for your own self. Now, does that mean that it's wrong to acknowledge that you've lost your mate or some child or some person that you love? And does this mean that you're supposed to be happy about it and as if nothing happened? No, that's not what I'm saying. But for you to sorrow as others who have no hope is wrong. It's not wrong in the sense that it's sin, that God's mad at you or anything like that, but it's unnecessary. You can let the Holy Spirit compensate you 
you can let the Holy Spirit comfort you. As a matter of fact, here's another passage of Scripture. I could have gone on and read because there's some great things there about the loved ones that have gone on before us. But let me read this verse to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 3 it says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. This says that the Holy Spirit comforts us in all of our tribulation. All of it, not some of it, not everything except the loss of a husband or a wife or a child or a friend or a parent or something. No, He comforts us in all of our tribulation. And God's comfort is so great that I guarantee you it can just literally overwhelm whatever hardship, problems, and things that you're dealing with. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, I won't take time to turn over and read this, but in Philippians chapter 3, he was talking about that he wanted to know Christ more than anything else. He counted everything else but dung in comparison, and he was pressing towards that mark, wanting to know Christ in, the, in his death and in his resurrection. And then he said, in, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, that doesn't relate to most people. Most people think, what does it mean to know Christ in the fellowship of His sufferings? The Lord said that when you suffer for His sake, that He comforts you, just like we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He comforts us. The Holy Spirit ministers to you. And what Paul was saying was that even when he was persecuted and when things bad happened to him, when he, when he experienced those negative circumstances because of his testimony and his proclaiming of the gospel, God compensated him for it. And it got to where that the compensation of God was so great that he actually looked forward to the fellowship of his sufferings, to the compensation, to the way that the Holy Spirit ministered to him. I don't know if you get that or not, but you can actually get to a place to where God comforts you in bad situations to the point that it becomes an awesome time. You know, I've got another friend that his wife used to work for me. She, she worked for me 25, 30 years ago or something. And anyway, she died recently within the last year or two. And this man, uh, who's a friend of mine, his name's Chellis Sheffield. And um, He's always been a great guy. I've always liked Chellis, and he loved the Lord, and he, he was good to people, and he, he did things for people, and he's been a giver and all of this, but he was so close to his wife. I remember at the memorial service, he talked about a song that they sang every day to each other, and they were just close, and they spent a lot of time together, and he missed his wife so much when she died that basically he wasn't going to be able to continue on the way it was. And out of desperation, just, you know, he, where does he go from here? He turned to the Lord and God ministered to Chellis so much that I, I went by and checked on Chellis one time just to kind of see how he was doing. And he told me that what he is experiencing with the Lord now, the love and the joy and the peace that he has with the Lord now is so great that it's actually the best time of his life. Even though he's missed his wife, even though he misses her, I'm not saying that he hasn't 
You know, I mean, that he hasn't longed at times for Sharon to be back and things like that. But I'm saying that God's compensation is so much greater than whatever we are dealing with that we can draw on that and you can go completely, completely contrary to the way that the world is saying, to the way that psychology is telling you that if this happens, if a person rejects you, if they persecute you, if they lie about you, if this happens, you don't have a choice but to just act this way. I'm using the testimony of Chellis Sheffield, this friend I was telling you about, about Debbie Moore, about many other people. I'm using the, the scriptures from the Word of God and I'm telling you, you can choose how you want to feel. The truth is that in your spirit, Galatians 5.22, you have love, joy, and peace all of the time. When you are grieving and when you're depressed and when you're sad and when you're worried and when you're fearful, all of those things are out in your soulless, mental, emotional realm. But in your spirit, man, if you've been born again, you have the same love that Jesus had. You have the same joy, the same peace. You have those things constantly, 24-7. And you have a choice. Are you going to walk in the spirit and let your spirit man dominate you? Or are you going to act like a person that doesn't even have a new spirit, that doesn't have the fruit of the spirit on the inside of them? Are you going to act like a person that doesn't have God living in them? And are you going to go through the grieving process and through the anger and the bitterness process the exact same way as a person that doesn't have the Lord? Well, it's sad to say there's many Christians, many good Christians, many people who love God who are just locked into doing it the human way and not factoring God into the equation. I'm not saying that you should be silly, giddy, acting as if nothing has ever happened. You know, I remember when my dad died at 12 years old and I turned to the Lord because, man, I miss my dad. And I was confused because I prayed for him for, for months to be healed. And he was in the hospital. And I don't know, back during that time, they wouldn't let me in because I was under 13. I wasn't a teenager. And I guess they were afraid I'd bring in a cold or do something. And I couldn't even go see my dad. I didn't see him for months before he died. My mother stayed in the hospital with him. I had to live with an elderly couple that took care of me. And I just stayed with them. And... Uh, it was a bad situation and I was confused because I prayed and yet he wasn't healed and uh, I had to deal with missing my dad and I turned to the Lord and God spoke to me out of Psalms 27 says, when your father or mother forsake you, then the Lord will take you up. Now my dad didn't forsake me in the sense that he did something wrong and willfully walked away. He died of some physical problems. But nonetheless, I was without a dad. And I took that verse as being directly from God. And I just turned to the Lord and I said, you're going to have to be my father. I did that at 12 years old. And God spoke to me. And I tell you, God became my father. God ministered to me. And you know what? I went out with my friends and I was, I guess, a typical teenager in a lot of ways. We did silly things and we joked around and did stuff. But there was a soberness about me that a lot of my friends didn't have. I remember that they would just do some, sometimes some weird, silly things that in the past I would have been right there with them. And yet, having to deal with the loss of my dad at 12 years old, it gave me a different perspective. I realized that some of the stuff that the typical kid was excited about, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, important. 
it changed my value systems. It changed the way that I looked at things. So I'm not saying that I was unaffected, but I am saying that because I turned to the Lord, God compensated me. God ministered to me. He supplied the need that I had. And praise God, I haven't been limping through life because I grew up without a dad. Psychology won't let you do that. They don't empower you that way. They limit you. You are only a human being. You, they don't acknowledge the supernatural realm, the power of God, the new birth, and who you are in Christ. And so those are some of the things that I completely disagree with because they say you are a product of your environment and you might be able to modify your behavior to a degree and you might learn coping me mechanisms that allow you to function, but you're at your core still going to be that same way. And man, I disagree with that. And let me just make a little, uh, you know, go a little further with this and say that the psychological profile tests that they give people and stuff, I, I've taken three of those tests. And every single time I've taken those tests, it is scary accurate how those things diagnose me. I mean, the very first time I took one, I was very skeptical. I thought, there's no way that me asking, answering questions about whether I like to go camping or whether, you know, all of this stuff. I thought, how is this going to tell anybody what my personality is? And so I took the test, very skeptical. And when they read back to me the summary, it was printed out. They compiled all of those answers. They read back the summary of me. It was like somebody had sat down and had written out my personality. So I'm saying that they are accurate in the sense that they are like taking a picture, a snapshot of where you are at that moment. I'm not opposed to them. If a person wants to find out how they are doing, are they an introvert or an, are they an extrovert? Are they an uh, administrative type or are they a visionary type? If you want to take one of those tests and find out where you are at that moment, well, then I'm not opposed to that because I believe it really does give you a pretty good insight into what's going on in you at that moment. But here again is where I really believe that the Bible differs from psychology because psychology will take these personality profiles and say, this is who you are at your core and you can't change. You might be able to modify it to a degree. Like for instance, if your personality type is right here, you might be able to vary a little bit on this side or maybe on this side, but this is the core person that you are and you are destined to be this way. You are doomed to be this way. They probably wouldn't use that terminology, but they would say that you can vary a tiny bit, but this is just who you are. I disagree with that. Jesus can make you to be something completely different than what you are at this moment. You might take one of those tests and find out where you are and use that as a benchmark, but then God is going to just... He, if you will turn to Him, He can totally transform your life and make you a new person. For instance, I was raised, and I don't believe anybody just is genetically this way, but because of my environment and things, I was an introvert. I, when I was around my friends, I could be okay. When I was at church is where I really excelled and that's where my best friends were. And when I was around them, I was relatively normal. But you get me outside of that. I remember as a senior in high school walking down the street and a man walked up to me and he said, good morning. And he was two blocks down the street before I said good morning back. I just couldn't talk to people. I'd freeze. If you came up a total stranger and asked me something, I'd just freeze. I remember in high school that uh, 
You know, I was uh, introverted. I was insecure around people and especially around girls. You know, guy and girl thing in high school. And the most popular girl in the entire school came up to me one day and she says, how do you spell something? And she asked me how to spell this word. And I meant to say, I never did spell very good, but I was so nervous talking to this popular, you know, attractive girl. And here I was, Mr. Nobody. I got nervous and I said, I, I never did smell very good. <laughs> it didn't come out spell. Came out, I never did smell very good. And so anyway, she started laughing and she told everybody in the whole class and the whole class just sat there and laughed at me. And I was such an introvert. I would stutter. I'd do all these things. Now, after Jesus has touched my life, you take one of these personality profiles, like I said, I've done it three times. I come out to an um, extrovert to the max. You know, usually they grade you on a one to 10. I'm always a number 10 extrovert. I am completely changed from what I was. If you would have given me one of those tests, see, when I was a teenager and it said, all right, this is your personality. This is the way you're going to be. You might improve a little bit, but this is just who you are. Well, that turned out to be wrong. I'm now the exact opposite. God has changed me. I'm speaking to people over television, millions of people. I can go up and talk to a fence post. And I mean, God changed my life. So see, I, this is one of the things I disagree with psychology, that psychology just says, this is what your background was. You were sexually abused when you were a child. This caused you pain. This has made you bitter. This has made you have the attitudes and the values that you have, and you're just going to have to live with it. You might be able to cope. You might get to where you can go ahead and be functional, but you are going to limp through life. This is just who you are. Man, the Bible teaches 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You become a brand new person in Christ Jesus and you can literally leave behind anything. I've met people that at one time were so mean and so bitter and now that on the other side of the cross, their encounter with the Lord, they are the most loving, kind person if I didn't just trust them and believe that what they were telling me was the truth, I couldn't believe the previous life and the things that they told me about because they're so changed. See, psychology doesn't allow that. Psychology doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the devil, doesn't believe in the spirit man. They just look at things from a soulish, mental part, how that affects your behavior, and they limit you to your responses that you are going to be crippled by things that happen to you. You're going to be influenced. You can never change, never get over this. And I'm telling you that that is not true. And again, I said this last week, but I am not attacking psychology because I'm against psychologists. Psychology has probably helped people to some degree because it's better than nothing. But compared to the total transformation and change and victory that Jesus offers and that the Word of God teaches, psychology is not the answer. And it's actually a hindrance. If you accept these premises that you just can't change, this is who you are, and you start placing the blame on your environment and say, this person did this to me, so that justifies me in being angry or bitter or having unforgiveness or grieving or whatever the situation is. 
That's a wrong attitude. And if you adopt that and believe that you're no different than a dog and you just have to respond to whatever happens to you, if you don't understand that you were created in the image of God and you can choose to be who you want to be, you can choose to love the very person that hates you. Of course, Jesus is the greatest example of this. And Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, people that believe psychology that, man, he was being crucified totally unjustly. There was no way that he could reconcile it and say, well, I deserve this. He didn't deserve it. Jesus was perfect. He was the creator. That old song, he could have called 10,000 angels. He said that there were legions of angels at his disposal and he could have come down off that cross at any time. He could have destroyed all of these people. They were his creation. And yet Jesus hung there and suffered And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus operated completely contrary to what the physical, natural realm would have dictated. I can guarantee you when he said, Father, forgive them, it's not because he just had goosebumps going up and down his spine and he was feeling this overwhelming love. It was a choice. Love involves emotions. It can, emotions can be a byproduct, a response to it, but love isn't just an emotion. And see, this just has a million and one applications. Again, because psychology has become so predominant in our society, there are people that are saying, well, I just fell out of love with this person. I just don't feel it. And so I'm not going to be a hypocrite. It's over. Let's divorce. Let's go get us another one. See, that is completely contrary to the Word. I heard a man interviewed one time who came from a country where they didn't choose their mate. Their parents arranged it and they married, you know, for status and I don't know all the different reasons, but they chose marriage. And somebody was interviewing him on television and saying, you know, you are forced to marry a person. How do you feel about that? And he says, in my country, he says, we choose to love the person we're married to. In your country, you marry the person that you choose to love. And there's a difference. And they just chose to love. And I, I don't know this for a fact, but I bet you you could go to that culture and look at the divorce rate and it would be less than it is in the United States in these developed countries that are just completely controlled by emotions. When Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't forgive the people because he felt like it and there was a rush of emotion. He did it because it's what he chose to do. And I'm sure that after he chose it, that he did feel compassion for the very people who were mocking him, plucking his beard out, pierced him in the side with the lance and all of these things. He chose to do that. And see, this is one of the applications of true biblical emotions is that you can choose how you want to feel. The Lord gave you a command to love your wife. Out of Ephesians chapter 5, it it gave the man the command to love his wife the way that Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, it says in Romans 5, 8, He committed His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord didn't love us because we were lovely. He didn't love us because we were just so awesome that, man, He had to have us. See, that's the way that most men relate to their wives. She was the homecoming queen. She was beautiful and all of these things. And he married her really for selfish reasons because he could just imagine everybody envying him as he walks down the uh, street with this beautiful woman on his side and she's just all of this. But then, you know, after a few decades, uh, things change. (laughs) 
Amen. And they aren't that beautiful and all of a sudden you've had arguments and they're no longer just the person that you were marrying for yourself. And all of a sudden they say, well, I've lost my love for her. Well, you never did have a God kind of love where you just chose to love this person because they deserved it and you just chose to love them. No, you were loving them because of all the benefit that they could be because they were so beautiful. They're so handsome. They're going to benefit you. They're going to serve you. They're going to help you. And then when they cease to do those things, all of a sudden I, I fell out of love. No, you fell out of lust. God's kind of love is not just a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a choice. And when you do that, you can choose to love a person and you can actually develop emotions and love and feelings for a person that in the natural may have a lot of things that would keep you from just loving them out of a selfish type of love. Man, I could get totally off the subject here and go to teaching on marriage, teaching on what God's kind of love is about. But I'm just saying that, see, all of this psychobabble or whatever the proper terminology for it is, all of these wrong assumptions that come from psychology have led us to believe that I'm justified to feel this way about my mate. You aren't justified. If you are a believer, the Lord gave you a command to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And He didn't say with an asterisk or a P.S. unless they are unloving, unlovely. Unless they do something wrong. Unless they get into a fight. Unless they lose their temper. Unless they do this. No, He didn't put qualifications on it. It was a command. You were supposed to love your wife the way that Christ loves the church. And yet most, minister, most Christians, even ministers, the, the wife isn't who they want them to be and so they feel justified in saying, well, I just don't feel anything for them. What you're saying is you're just carnal. You're just going by your feelings. You are into this psychology type of stuff that when your circumstances change and this person isn't the asset to you that you wanted them to be, you just forget them. I remember when I was a kid that the guy who lived behind us we shared a fence with them and the person that lived behind us, he was the principal of a school and his wife had a car wreck and in this car wreck, she became basically a vegetable. She wasn't able to communicate. She was alive. She was healthy, but her brain wasn't working. She had to be waited on 24 hours a day. And this man for, I couldn't even tell you how many years, but I'm sure it was 10, 20 years or whatever that I lived there, he just took care of her. He loved her. He didn't have any physical relationship with her. He couldn't talk to her. They couldn't communicate. And yet he stayed married to her. And I remember as a kid uh, hearing other people talk about this and say, why doesn't he divorce her? And some people see would feel totally justified because after all, she can't meet his physical desires. She can't in, in, interact with him mentally, emotionally. And because he wasn't getting what he needed, they felt that's justification for doing anything. Let their environment control how they feel. But praise God, this man was a godly enough man that, you know what, he made a commitment to that woman and he loved her. And even though she wasn't able to love him back, he loved her. And that's a God kind of love, laying your life down for a person. Psychology doesn't preach that. It's all about you. It's all about just take care of yourself. It's very similar to when you go and get a soda or something. You stick that straw in there and you suck it until you hear the at the end. And when it's empty, you just throw that one away and go get you another one. And that's what people are doing with marriage. They go find somebody that they think is going to bless them and help them. And then the moment that they cease to 
be able to supply them. The moment that they need something from them that they have to start giving, well, they just divorce them, throw them away, and let's go get another one. See, that's not God's kind of love. That's where all of this humanistic stuff and environment, and I can't feel good, I can't ever be happy if this person isn't the right person, if they aren't the perfect person and stuff, so I'm going to get rid of them and change my environment. And so I've already made two major points, and that is that psychology basically teaches that a environment is the controlling, dominating factor. You are a product of your environment, and that affects the way you think and view life. That affects your actions. That produces an experience, and that causes emotions, etc. I believe that the Bible teaches that environment is a factor, but the dominating thing is the way you think. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, and that thinking controls your emotions, James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which causes your actions, etc. So there's a different sequence here, and, and the difference is that this means that uh, you can't change your environment completely and if environment is the dictating, controlling factor, then people who've had a bad environment are just destined to be that way. So that's the first thing we talked about. That leads to blaming your environment, your genetics, other people for the jerk that you are, for the mess that your life is. And that's completely contrary to the word where you humble yourself, you accept responsibility. As long as you embrace being a victim, you can never be a victor. And we talked about that a lot. The third major difference that I've been talking about is that if your environment is the dominating, controlling factor that makes you think and therefore act and feel a certain way, the only way to ever change your emotions is to change your environment. And that's wrong. Sometimes you can't change your environment. Let me say it this way. You might be able to change your future environment, but you can't change your past environment. You can't change the color of your skin. You can't change the home that you were raised in. You can't change the way that you were treated. You can't change the people who've rejected you. And when you believe that all of these things are just like dominoes that happen as a result of your environment, then the only way for you to go forward and to have positive emotions and succeed is to just make sure that your environment's always positive. And you cannot do that in a fallen world. That is absolutely unrealistic. This is what has led to so many marriages being, you know, they just end in divorce and they think my problem is this person. And if I just had a new person, I'm going to go marry somebody else and everything will be okay. And you know what? They learned what not to do in their first marriage. So in their second marriage, they go and pick the person who's all of the things that they wish their first mate would have been and they wind up with the same problems. How can that be? It's because the problem isn't just out there. The problem's what's on the inside of you. Man, I hadn't got time to teach on that, but this book entitled Self-Centeredness, The Source of All Grief would really address what I'm just touching on right here. Matter of fact, I met a man who he and his wife were going through a divorce and they had already filled out the papers, were in the process of a divorce, and he listened to this teaching on self-centeredness, the source of all grief in his car. He pulled over on the side of the road, repented, saw what the problem was, and he and his wife got back together. And for the last 15 years or something, they've been traveling and teaching marriage seminars and helping people get their marriage back together. 
It is not the other person that's the problem. It's what's on the inside of you that makes you respond to that other person that's the problem. You cannot control your environment completely. We live in a fallen world. You are married to a fallen person. You know, I have been seeking the Lord for 47 years with my entire heart. For 57 years, I've been born again. And I am trying to be the best husband, the best person that I can be. But I can guarantee you, I am not a perfect husband. I do not minister to my wife the way that she deserves to be ministered to. I'm not the perfect person. And if I just got what I deserved, man, Jamie would divorce me. I put Jamie through some hard times with some of the dumb things that I've done. And she doesn't love me because I deserve it and stuff. We both learn that we are married to imperfect people and we give each other grace and mercy. We don't give them justice. I used to develop pictures in a photography studio and these primarily women would come in and they'd look at it and they'd say, oh, this picture doesn't do me justice. I never had the nerve to do it, but I wanted to say, lady, you don't need justice, amen. You need mercy. And that's, you know, we don't need justice. If you go in and just think, well, this person needs to treat me this way and this way and this way. They aren't perfect. You aren't perfect. And there needs to be a lot of mercy and grace in a marriage. But see, psychology just thinks, no, it's, it's my environment. This person, if I was married to the perfect person, then everything would be great. Well, if you find the perfect person, don't marry them because you'd ruin the marriage because you aren't perfect. You just can't always change your environment. We can live a victorious life, a happy life, a fulfilled life in the very midst of problems. Did you know that Moses went down to Egypt and he did all of these miraculous things, the 10 plagues, he parted the Red Sea, Moses was used of God in the way that very few people have ever been used in the history of the world. And did you know that right before he got to Egypt, he and his wife had a fight and she left him and she went back home and he was separated from his wife the whole time that these awesome, mighty miracles of God flowed through him. When he was up on the mountain and spent 40 days in the presence of God and had the Ten Commandments given to him, did you know he was separated from his wife? Did you know that they had had problems and yet God used him? So you know what? The point that I'm making is Moses wasn't perfect and yet God used him. In the midst of a situation that wasn't perfect, Moses was in relationship with God, did some of the mightiest miracles that have ever happened. If you have adopted this lie of psychology that environment is controlling, it dictates, I'm just like an animal. If this happens, I've got to be this way. Then the only way you are ever going to be able to try and change things and make things better is to change your environment. And yet you can see multitude of examples in the Bible as well as just if you'd open your eyes and look around of people who are happy and victorious and prosperous even though they're in bad situations. That's a lie. You are not like an animal. You can choose life even in the midst of a death situation. You can choose to be happy and rejoicing and praising God and you can have positive emotions regardless of what's going on. Let me give you another scriptural example of this out of the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And this is where Paul and Silas had gone over into Macedonia and this wasn't something that they did on their own. He had been trying to go in some places and he had been prevented every time. 
And he saw in a vision a man saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And so it says that he arose and went there knowing that the Lord had surely called him to Macedonia. So Paul was right in the center of God's will. And yet, when he got into Macedonia, he got arrested, beaten, and put in the dungeon with his feet and hands in the stocks. Now see, this again is something that people misunderstand. They think that if I'm in the center of God's will, everything should be perfect. Paul was in the center of God's will and he got arrested and beaten and put in jail unjustly. You know, when the children of Israel went into the promised land, one of the ways that they knew that they had arrived at the place God wanted them to be was because there was giants. There were armies fighting against them. There was opposition and yet they were in the center of God's will. One of the ways you can tell if you're in the promised land is, is there opposition? Are there giants? This thought, this thought that if I'm doing what God wants me to, everything will just be perfect. Man, you can't find that in the Bible. That's not scriptural. Actually, I don't believe you can discern God's leading and, and perfect will by either positive or negative circumstances. But if you were to choose one of those two, it's probably more... Um, common in the Bible that when people experience opposition, that that's more of an indication that you're in the will of God. If you never bump into the devil, it's because you're both headed the same direction. If you're doing what God wants you to, there is going to be opposition and you need to reject this psychological thing that if there's opposition, I can't help but be hurt and discouraged and despair. Here's Paul who was in the perfect will of God doing exactly what God told him to do and yet he was arrested, beaten, and put in prison, feet and hands in the stocks. And look at what it says here in Acts chapter 16 in verse 23. It says, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Did you know that psychology, again, says your environment dictates how you think and how you act and how you feel. And so if you want to change, you've got to change your environment. You've got to get rid of this person. You can't be happy as long as you aren't married to Mr. or Mrs. Perfect. You can't have uh, true fulfillment in your career unless you have the perfect job and the perfect boss. Unless everything is going your way, unless you're perfectly healthy, unless you got all of the money that you could ever want, that's what you need to be happy. That's, what, that's the attitude that our world has embraced. Here's Paul and Silas in a terrible situation and at midnight, the darkest part of the night, in a place where there was no light, they were in the darkest part of the dungeon, their feet in the stocks. You know that there's bound to have been rats and insects. This wasn't a modern day prison with a flat screen TV and all of the amenities and stuff like this. This was prison. This was a bad situation. And according to psychology, they should have been just broken and defeated and they should have been crying and this should have been a terrible experience. And if they didn't feel that way, they were in denial. See, that's psychology. And I'm telling you that that's wrong. That is wrong. Now, I'm saying that that's the natural thing and I don't doubt that they had the tendency or the temptation. They could have felt that way. But at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Man, they were rejoicing. And you know, some people have heard 
that in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus, when he was entering into Jerusalem, the scribes and Pharisees came and criticized him because they said, Master, don't you hear what your disciples are doing? They're praising you and singing Hosanna and glory to God in the highest. And it says, command them to be quiet. And he says, if these shut up, the very rocks would cry out. And then they said, but they shouldn't be praising you. He says, if these don't praise me, says the rocks would cry out. And he says, haven't you ever read? And he quoted from Psalms chapter 8, where it says, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected praise. But in the Old Testament, it says, thou hast ordained strength. And so some people have taken Matthew 21, Psalms chapter 8, put them together, and it's and it taught, and rightfully so, that when you are praising God, you are releasing strength to still the enemy and the avenger. And so there are some people that have received that truth, and when they get into a tight situation, they will go through the motions of praising God. But it's in order to obtain deliverance. They're trying to release strength and overcome the devil. And that's not totally wrong, but let me just say that Paul and Silas weren't praising God with that mindset because when they got to praising God and singing, the Lord got to tapping His foot to the music and an earthquake came and it opened up all of the prison doors. Their shackles fell off. Their stocks were broken. And Paul and Silas were freed as, long, as well as all of the other prisoners in the whole prison. And they didn't leave. So here's a radical thought. Paul and Silas weren't praising God just to get something. Here's a novel thought. They were praising God because they were actually in love with God and praising God out of a pure heart, not in order to get something, but just thankful. And here they were in a situation where their backs were beaten, they were bleeding, they were in prison unjustly, they were possibly facing execution, they didn't know what the outcome of it would be, but that was a real uh, possibility. They were in an uncomfortable situation, they were being treated and rejected, and all they'd done is obey God and tell people about the goodness of God. Did you know if they had understood, if they had been versed in modern psychology, then they would have been complaining, crying, calling out to God. And if they didn't do that, they'd be saying, we're in denial. We're suppressing these things. We need to vent it. We need to let it out. They did completely opposite all of that. And because of it, they not only led this jailer to the Lord, but they led all of those prisoners to the Lord. Now, the scripture doesn't say they led the prisoners to the Lord, but I'm assuming that because it says that all of the prison doors were open, all of the chains fell off, and none of the prisoners left. Man, these are people that were in for rape and murder and stealing and things like this, and yet when their prison doors opened, they didn't escape. They stayed. I'm just assuming that they were so touched by Paul and Silas singing and worshiping and praising God and listening to these men who had been treated so badly, so happy and so joyful and praising God that they accepted and they were ministered to by Paul and Silas and they were freer in prison than they had ever been out of prison. So I believe that probably the whole jail received salvation as well as this jailer. And so anyway, I use this example to show you that, see, psychology says it's your environment that dictates you be this way. And because of that, they blame their environment. They blame their genetics. They blame other people. And that leads to saying that 
You can't be happy unless you change your environment and change these things because environment dictates and controls. This is an example of Paul and Silas acting and feeling emotionally completely opposite to their environment. Man, that's powerful. That this may be radical to you. You say, I've never heard anybody say these things. That doesn't mean it's wrong. I've been sharing with you scripture. Tell me how you can justify you feeling and acting and being bitter and morose and depressed and discouraged and all of these things when here's people who've suffered more unjustly than you have and they were able to praise God. Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, and some people think, well, he, see, he's just had a light affliction. I got this heavy affliction. No, you read right here. This is part of his light affliction. Second Corinthians chapter 11, he lists what his light affliction was. And he was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned unjustly. He stayed in prison at one time for two years in Judea. And then he was shipped to Rome and spent an undeclosed amount of time there. But it was with the transit, the two years in Judea and the time in Rome, he spent a minimum of four years in prison when he was totally innocent. And he was imprisoned at other times, just like this right here. So who knows? He might have spent five or six years of his ministry in prison totally unjustly. He was beaten with rods. He was beaten with whips. He was stoned and left for dead at Lystra and Derby and Iconium. And he was so close to death that the people who were trying to kill him left thinking he was dead. If he wasn't dead... He was close to it. I personally believe he probably was dead, but it makes special mention that as the disciples stood round about him and prayed that he rose up and he walked 20-something miles into the next town and the next day started preaching again. And so Paul went through terrible things. When he says it was a light affliction, it wasn't because he didn't have as many problems as you have. It's because of the way he processed it. He did not believe this psychology stuff that this has happened to me, so therefore I just must be depressed. I must be defeated. No, he knew that God loved him. He believed that he had love, joy, and peace on the inside of him. And Paul began to worship and praise God. You could study the book of Philippians. That's what this teaching on how to be happy is. It's a teaching through the book of Philippians. Paul was in the Philippian jail. That's this instance that we're reading right here. And he had, uh, or excuse me, he had been put into jail in, in uh, Philippi. But when he wrote the book of Philippians, he was in Rome at this time. He was in another imprisonment. And he was more joyful than he was in any of his other writings. And I just go through the book of Philippians and show you how he was able to do that because he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It wasn't all about him. The next thing I'm going to talk about, and this will be on the next teaching in this series, and it's going to be talking about self-esteem. Paul didn't esteem himself higher than other people. He esteemed Christ first and the mission, the job that Jesus had given him to do, and other people, he loved them. Philippians chapter 2, he, he gave us a command to esteem others higher than yourself. And Paul was esteeming himself last compared to these other things. And because of that, Paul had joy. He was able to sing in the midst of prison. When he wrote this book to the Philippians, he was trying to comfort them because they were concerned, wondering how he was doing. 
Let me ask you this question. If you were in prison and if people wrote you and said, how are you doing? How would you comfort them? Most people would say, well, I'm okay. They're treating me this way. I've got this advantage. I'm doing better than some other prisoners. You know how Paul comforted the people that were concerned about him? He said, rejoice because the gospel is being preached. He says people are being converted in Caesar's household. The gospel is going out. And so therefore, all of my suffering is worth it. You know how he could do that? Because he valued other people. He valued God more than he valued himself. Most people today can't do that because they esteem self above anything else. Self-esteem is like an idol today to most people. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of things more important than you. <laughs> Paul is an example that you do not need to change your environment to operate in joy and peace. You can choose it. You can change your focus. You can look beyond what's happening to you and focus on God and focus on heaven and focus on the reward that you're going to receive for all enduring all of the hardships that you go through. You can choose how you want to feel. And man, I disagree with psychology 100,000% on this point. I'm telling you, there's a difference between psychology and true Christianity.